So Acts 12, I don't know how familiar you are with the book of Acts or the 12th chapter, but Acts 12 tells the story of, a, of tyrants being tyrants, right? Good old tyrants being tyrants. When we learn that King Herod, quote, laid violent hands upon some who belonged to the church. That's what chapter 12, verse 1 of Acts says. It was politically motivated, of course, and entirely heavy-handed was his response or what he was executing on the church. One church leader will be killed by the sword, is what we learn there, James, the brother of John, while another, Peter, uh, is seized and imprisoned. It seems rather certain from the story itself that Herod's plan is to have the latter here, to have Peter killed sometime following Passover. Of course, the real danger in all this and the violence of the moment wasn't lost on those early, or at least those earliest Jesus followers. And their actions here suggest as much. We hear in Acts chapter 12, verse 5, the church prayed fervently to God, and they're praying uh, for Peter. Most assuredly here, they're praying for his deliverance. But when what is hoped for becomes that which is, it catches everyone by surprise. If you read the story there, you see that the guards, when they discover Peter is gone, we read that there was, quote, no small commotion. And of course, the escape raises the anger of Herod and marks the death sentence for all those guards who were on duty that day. For the church, those who'd gathered to pray and also to support one another in this troubled hour, they don't at first believe the report that Peter is free. In fact, Peter is standing there at the outer gate where they're meeting, and they don't quite believe the report. It's, it seems too wild and outrageous to be believed. And Peter himself, Peter himself, experiencing all this firsthand, right? He's the one who's being freed and delivered. He experienced it firsthand, but he is first convinced that this is a vision, that he's having a vision. The chains fall off. He's told, there's the door. And he's like, I must be dreaming this. This can't possibly be happening. This can't be real. It seems that one person in the story, her name's Rhoda. She's a maid who greets Peter at the outer gate, is the one person who has the appropriate response amidst all of this when it says that she was overjoyed. Overjoyed. We want to hold those words there for a moment, especially on this pink candle Sunday, the joy candle that she's overjoyed by these happenings. But imagining this is some kind of dream, I think that's a fairly common expression or feeling amongst captives who suddenly find themselves set free. People that have been locked up for some time or even just for a little bit of time, both in the modern world but also in the ancient world. I read this past week about a California man who spent the last 25 years in prison for a murder he didn't commit. He was exonerated and ordered to be released. We've heard this story before, right? Too many times. This person was freed just last month. Story continues. His name was Miguel Solorio, and he described his release this way. It's like a dream. It's like a dream I don't want to wake up from. The ancients used similar language in our psalm. And we see that in Psalm 126. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. An unbelievable experience that, like Rhoda's response upon hearing and seeing Peter, is accompanied by joy. We hear that in verse 2. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. 
all because of what God has done in the past. The psalmist is looking back. And that something says something about who God is, and it says something about what God is up to. But it also tells us something about what God thinks about people, both ancient and modern, people like you and me. Now, there's an interpretive tradition here that locates this psalm and its translation of verses 1 and 4 with the return from exile. And you'll see that actually make its way in the text, especially if you look at the footnote. If you have an NRSV there, you can see in the footnote they, they show what that reading looks like. But if you read the King James, you'll also see it rendered there. But scholars observe that this underlying language instead invites a more expansive understanding, a less particular type reading about a singular historic event. But whatever the underlying event envisioned here by the ancient writer and their community, the picture that comes into view is a very positive one. We can say that at at least. And it culminates in the declaration in verse 3, the Lord has done great things for us. And there's a similar refrain that's echoed by the nations who first give witness in verse 2, saying the Lord has done great things for them, looking at those who benefit from God's work. It's inspiring the people of God in verse 3 to rejoice. But then there's a shift. Then there's a shift. The text shifts on us. But the first section's tone, it now shifts to a seemingly different tone in verse 4 and following as once-remembered restoration moves to a prayer for God to do it again. All that stuff you did way back when, can you do that again now? It's a kind of that was then and this is now moment. The needs before the psalmist and their community are perhaps most optimistically understood as being a pre-rejoicing moment. At least they're traversing a patchy rough spot at this point in their story Perhaps joy might come again. Some this morning may recall that in the summer of 2020, uh, we pondered these psalms of ascent. In fact, as I was reading through this psalm this week, I was saying, I think I've preached that before. Little did I know that was like three years ago. There goes my memory. But we went through the psalms of ascent in that summer of 2020. And that series noted that these songs uh, form an ancient playlist sung by the faithful for millennia now even serving as pilgrim songs sung en route to the holy city. But they can also serve for us moderns here as well, faithful pilgrims in our own day, in our, in our own time, to serve to inspire and renew us and to teach us the language of worship. They also provide for us a language for prayer when those words escape us, one that helps us articulate our angst and our ache and the hopes that we have in this generation. So there's something here to be prayed specifically and particularly in our own day. Now, you might have seen earlier last month that the American Psychological Association released their Stress in America 2023 report. Anybody read that report? Anybody see that, the Stress in America report? You're like, brother, I'm living it. I don't need to see no report. I am a report. The report observed, uh, quote, that the U.S. society appears to be experiencing the psychological impacts of a collective trauma in the aftermath of the COVID-19 pandemic. And though the start of the pandemic is, is feeling more and more distant uh, with each passing day, there are psychological wounds that remain within our population and within our congregation, within our lives. The report went on to outline areas that are stressing a lot of us out these days, and here's what they found. The future of our nation, 
That's stressing a lot of people out these days. Almost 70% of the people that responded to the survey are stressed out by that. Violence and crime, about 60%. U.S. debt, mass shootings, social divisiveness, and health care. These are some of the top things that showed up that are stressing us today. And that's a lot to carry. You look at just that list, that's all you had on your list, that's a lot to carry. A burden that far exceeds our capacity to keep it all together, both corporately but also individually. And speaking of individually, how are you doing? Maybe that's your list, plus you've got your own individual list. We certainly could add here the stresses of home, the stresses of community and workplace, the stresses on families, people raising children today, and the costs that are associated with that, people that are caring for ailing parents and grandparents, and the costs that are associated with that, both emotionally but also financially. That's a lot of stress. It's a lot of stress that there's one great wise person once shared the picture of what this looks like. Louisa said, pressure like a drip, 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 that'll never stop. Whoa. Pressure that'll tip, tip, tip till you just go pop. Whoa, oh, oh. <laughs> right? Have you seen Encanto? If you haven't, it's time to see it. It's time to see it. So where does our relief come from? That's our experience. Where does relief come from? Where do we find it? Well, for early Jesus followers... Persecution and imprisonment was a call to prayer. It was a call to pray together. And for the ancient psalmist, their song serves as a prayer, one that marks what God has done in verses 1 through 3 and anticipates what God will do, that God will do it again. And they pray as much in verses 4 and following. There's a minister named James Howell who observes here, it is that past that anchors us solidly enough to know what to expect of God in the future. And that if we understand God's habits, God's heart is shown in years gone by, we know what to look for, what to ask for, what realistically will come to be. And so here, we're gearing up to pray. The question for us here is, what is the challenge that stands before us? What keeps us from being those people of prayer? And what are we praying at and towards? Well, the psalmist relates their challenge in verse 4 to the Negev. If you're not sure what that is, imagine a desert, because that's exactly what it is. In fact, the root word here means to be dry, <laughs> so there's no confusion. It's a desert called Desert Desert. Not a lush and inviting place, not your beautiful gardens. Some of you have beautiful gardens in your yard, lots of flowers and plants, and smells good, looks good. Big water bill. It's not that. This is rather a harsh and unforgiving environment. It's my backyard. <laughs> of course, that all changes during the very short rainy season. When the land is watered and is suddenly teeming with growth, it's a sudden reversal. It's a complete transformation. Or in verse 5, where the farmers sow in tears, but reap an altogether different harvest. Shouts of joy, shouts of joy to the life that is hard and might not get easier, as Amy Grant sang. This harvest and those water courses in the Negev say something different, and tears don't get the final word. 
Tears don't get the final word in this economy. This much we've heard before, and we hear that throughout Scripture. Isaiah chapter 25, verses 7 through 8, He will swallow up death forever. Then the Lord God will wipe away the tears from all faces. Then the Lord God will wipe away the tears from all faces. It's picked up in Revelation chapter 21, 4. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. Or Matthew chapter 5, verse 4 in the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Or John chapter 16, verse 22. So you have pain now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Or 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 through 18. So we do not lose heart, even though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For our slight momentary affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all measure. Because we look not at what can be seen, but what cannot be seen. For what can be seen is temporary, but what cannot be seen is eternal. That wasn't enough. Psalm chapter 30, verse 5. Joy comes with the morning. Joy comes with the morning. So amidst this challenging hour, we don't lose hope. We're not supposed to lose hope. But rather we pray. And we join the psalmist in that prayer. Do it again. Do it again, Lord. Just as much as we pray, come, Lord Jesus. Because one day, one day, we will be on the other side of the obstacle that's before us right now. One day you'll be on the other side of this. Whatever the peace that's holding you down, the peace that's beating you down, one day you'll be on the other side of that. And you'll be able to look back. And on that day, you'll be able to rejoice. Noel Shaw had a keen mind. He had a keen mind. That much was clear to his neighbors. Particularly one neighbor who observed Shaw's head was like a tar bucket for everything that touched it stuck to it. Now, that's a curious choice of synonym there, uh, particularly for us. Uh, No one's ever told me my head was like a tar bucket. But it was the 19th century, so perhaps it played better back in that environment. They had more familiarity with tar buckets. But Shaw had quite the ability and was a quick learner. That much we know about his life. He quickly learned how to fix sewing machines. He was also a carpenter. He was also a plasterer. He learned how to make shoes in one week, as the story goes. Making shoes. How's that? There's also stories about him from a local watchmaker who was greatly astonished. Knowles asked if he could borrow his tools so that he could fix his watch and promptly took apart his watch cleaned it up, put it back together in full working order, having never learned how to work on a watch before. In fact, at one point, it wasn't just in the trades, but Knowles, Shaw was also academically, he had to pick up things really quick. There was one point where he had a chance to study under a teacher where he could learn Greek and Latin. In about a month, he had learned everything the teacher knew. Lessons over. So he had quite the mind. He was also proficient on the violin, and oftentimes his community would draw on him to come and play at all kinds of dances and community gatherings. So he made an impression on his contemporaries, perhaps even more so as a famed evangelist who's been credited with baptizing somewhere in the neighborhood of 11,000 people over the course of his ministry. His final words in life are recorded because he was board a train on his way to an evangelistic crusade 
And while traveling there, he fell victim to a, a train crash. But before the crash occurred, just very shortly before it happened, he was heard saying these words to someone else. They didn't know that the crash was coming. And he simply said, it is a grand thing to rally people to the cross of Christ. That's a guy that was hardcore. Think about it. He was all in when it came to being an evangelist and sharing Christ. And you'd expect that from someone who is such a famed evangelist. But perhaps Shaw's most enduring words for us this morning are ones you probably already know. You may have heard these words before. They're inspired by that final verse of Psalm 126. Noel Shaw wrote a song that juxtaposes the challenges of the present with the anticipated coming future. This is the do-it-again words from Noel Shaw when he wrote this song. Sowing in the morning, sowing seeds of kindness, sowing in the noontide and the dewy eve, waiting for the harvest and the time of reaping, we shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves. He goes on the right, sowing in the sunshine, sowing in the shadows, fearing neither clouds nor winter's chilling breeze. By and by the harvest and the labor ended, we shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves, going forth with weeping, sowing for the master. Though the loss sustained our spirit often grieves, when our weeping's over, he will bid us welcome. We shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves. Bringing in the sheaves. Bringing in the sheaves. Friends, amidst the toil and challenges of this age, the challenges that you face this moment with each passing minute, if God's past action teaches us anything about what is to come, if God's proven love in Jesus Christ speaks any kind of word to us, even now, it is that one day we shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves. Maybe so for each one of us this day and every day of our lives. Amen. Friends, let us pray. Lord, we thank you for the magnificent gift that it is of your grace and your love for us. And the gift of your word that witnesses to us that love, that helps us to see and to know, to hear good news, words of that great love that has been for us, then and now and forever. So Lord, help us as we live lives that walk through some pretty dark places. Help us to remember that one day, we too will come rejoicing. And in that, we find hope because we find our hope in you. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.